I was in my early 20s and an idiot. In the late 90s, I was involved in a project aiming to address rampant oil piracy happening in an oil-rich country in the Middle East. You can probably guess which one I'm talking about. Hundreds of millions of dollars moved daily in the form of crude oil from refineries to huge ships, otherwise known as super tankers. These ships would deliver the oil to intended buyers to destinations all around the world. This was an ideal environment for corruption. But before we get into exactly how they were doing it, let me give you a quick primer on this particular brand of oil piracy. So the current way to measure the oil transfer or custody of the oil was with what are called PD meters or positive displacement meters. However, the accuracy of these meters were in question due to a number of environmental factors. Everything from the time of year to the climate, the density of the oil, the viscosity of the oil, all of that had direct implications on exactly what was flowing through these custody meters. So for example, you take the place in the Middle East I'm referring to, temperatures can get up upwards of 140, 150 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer, which means crude oil will flow like hot water. While in the winter, while it may not be incredibly cold, it's cool enough that things like the paraffin and the wax and other sediment within the actual oil will move it like sludge or molasses through these meters. Not to mention things like expansion and contraction of the oil once it got inside the hull of these, these vessels where it would cool off and change essentially the amounts that were being calculated. So all of these issues uh, rendered an inaccurate result that made it very difficult for the, the refinery to determine whether they were actually delivering the right amount of oil or not. Now, that in comparison to what the super tankers on ship crew measurement was, was extremely hard to, to debate because they're essentially a contained environment. They knew exactly how much was there and they could essentially say, look, we know exactly what you've actually put onto our ship. It's a defined amount. You need to add more or whatever the case may be. And then you add to that maritime law, oldest law in the world where ship captains have the final say on what ultimately happens on their ship. Safety of the crew and cargo is of paramount importance. And if a ship captain says, add more oil, the crew at the refinery has little choice but to comply. I mean, quite frankly, an unbalanced ship due to some sort of incorrect allocation uh, can or inadequate amount of crude can be catastrophic. Think, think like the Exxon Valdez uh, disaster. Very, very unfortunate situation that, uh, you know, kind of haunts all of these people perpetually. And then you add to that the cost of these ships being at these berths and being at these ports, incredibly expensive, exorbitant amount per day for these things to be there. So really any deliberation or disagreement would cost money. And it was really in everyone's best interest to move the ships through as fast as possible. There's usually a line waiting to come on in, out in waters, you know, deeper waters until they're brought in to port to be able to load up and move on. So really, it made it quite a difficult situation and a high-pressure situation for a lot of these refinery groups that were there. And another key aspect to note here, and it's, it's very important to the story, was that many of these super tankers were owned and operated by third-party contractors. So they weren't necessarily owned by the end buyers. Um, and you add to that that the captains and crews here were likely contractors as well. It really has a key uh, aspect to the story here. So... In several cases, we learned that these ship captains would demand an additional 
amount of oil to be loaded on, sometimes thousands of barrels to be added uh, to the vessel before agreeing to leave the port. And the refinery crew, as I mentioned before, had little choice but to comply with the demands. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Once the vessel was en route and safely in international waters, the ship would turn off its satellite transponders at a pre-agreed upon location, effectively falling off the grid for anyone to find them. And once stabilized and undetectable, smaller pirate vessels, many times off the coast of Africa or India, would appear at that pre-agreed upon location, connect, basically dock up with the ship, siphon off the excess oil, bringing the level of oil down to the original intended allocation. The super tanker captain would then be paid a pre-agreed upon sum for the amount of oil that was actually siphoned off by the pirate, who would then peel off with the ill-gotten gains. Then the super tanker would then turn their satellite transponders back on, coming back on grid, not causing any terrible alarms, and continue on to their intended destination with no one the wiser. So a committee comprised mainly of government, ministry officials, and some royalty uh, was assembled and were tasked with hiring a consultant group to help with the problem. Um, and I happened to be part of this greater team with identifying and presenting a solution to this task force or this committee. There were a few loose parameters and directives they gave us. Um, however, as they put it specifically, all options remained on the table, giving us quite a bit of latitude. It was kind of the dream project that we always hoped for. Massive budget, you know, by anyone's standards, and then minimal guardrails. So we felt fairly free to sort of pursue a variety of angles and, and uh, strategies, and it was a very exciting time. Several months into the project, and after several proposed solutions, um, some of which were suggested and rejected, we identified a small meter manufacturer near Houston, Texas, that had designed what was called an MVTM, otherwise known as a multi-viscosity turbine meter. Now, this particular meter was able to deliver a strikingly accurate flow measurement due to its unique blade design and methodology. Again, well beyond my understanding, I'm not a physicist or an engineer uh, or oil engineer or flow engineer, but um, suffice it to say, once the engineers and physicists did get you know, a, their hands on it and were able to qualify and validate the results, we knew we had a viable solution. It's a fantastically exciting opportunity. It had been deployed in a variety of places within the, the Western world, and it seemed like the ideal solution to be able to give them a validated res response to say, look, this is exactly what's gone through these meters. So we spent the next, next several weeks de developing a comprehensive proposal with a phased deployment of these MVTMs across all refineries that would span several years and systemically disrupt this ongoing privacy. So naturally, I envisioned a triumphant delivery of the proposal to an eternally grateful committee. Classic, young, excited uh, perspective here. That couldn't be further from the reality that ensued. So a quick backtrack as it relates to the story. This particular country was dry. In other words, it did not permit any kind of alcohol for consumption. Um, so you had to be a little bit creative. The American embassy would host a happy hour one night a week and allow homesick American citizens to congregate and have a few drinks. 
I made fast friends with the bartender there and several regulars who never missed a happy hour. <laughs> Plenty of those. One of those regulars was a gentleman named Joshua for the purposes of this story. Now, Joshua worked for the State Department and was posted up at the embassy for several years. He and I trade stories. Uh, I lamented uh, the brutal summers there and we kind of kept it small talk over, over beers. Uh, fairly nice guy, but nothing very deep. Uh, just a fun person to talk to and, and sort of share, share stories with. Now, Joshua is a pivotal part of the story. So the day arrived for me to present our findings to the committee and proposed our phase remediation plan. The boardroom filled in with the committee members and I began my presentation. Now, most of the members appeared to be preoccupied with their PDAs and Blackberries. Um, you know, this is, you gotta remember the timeline or time frame around then. Um, no questions, no nods as I'm presenting the solution to them. Really just general boredom. And, you know, I'm a young 20-some-year-old consultant thinking I'm delivering the most amazing story they've ever heard, and I'm not getting the response I expected. And it made zero sense to me. So I just assumed they needed time to read the proposals themselves and, you know, adopt the level of excitement that we had about it because we had obviously kind of gone through the whole process of seeing how this could, could solve the problem. And um, I concluded my presentation and summarily ushered from the boardroom after a couple casual waves and thank yous and just, just nothing really overly, overly uh, exciting. We were assured that they'd take it under advisement and they'd let us know their decision. Two weeks later, no response. I called the committee liaison who assured me that they were still reviewing and thank you for my continued interest. Should have probably stopped right around then to give you a clue to, to how the story ends. Being young and tenacious though, I didn't. And certainly I was a little bit naive and wasn't very satisfied with that answer. So I sort of sat there biding my time thinking when I might be able to go and actually go talk to them a little bit more about it. Maybe they didn't understand what I had to say. There's a variety of things that went through my head. That evening was happy hour and I ran into Joshua at the bar as usual. I shared the story of our project, the committee's lukewarm response, my confusion about their lack of enthusiasm. And he graciously listened, you know, kind of half paying attention, passively suggested I just give it time and let him deliberate and just kind of left it at that, you know, another just kind of bar friend to, to try to tell you not to worry about it. Several weeks later and no updates of any kind, I called again, but this, this time I received a little bit more of an agitated response. The committee liaison sternly thanked me for my continued interest, but reminded me that my part was done and that they had the project handled. So, you know, I thought, okay, you know, does handled mean you're actually doing this? Are they taking under advisement? Are they, are they actually executing on this? And no answer. Now, several days later, I received a call from Joshua who really never called unless it was simply about happy hour or if I was late to it or what the case may be or whatever. Very, very, again, small talk oriented conversation with him for the most part, who curiously asked how things were going with the project. And at the time, I didn't find that too off color, but in retrospect, I should have picked up on his cues. And after I shared that nothing had progressed, he quickly offered that I leave it be and move on. I did find that slightly odd because I thought, okay, well, you know, I've talked about plenty of things with him. Um, I could tell he, he saw I was perturbed about it, but I did find it a little bit odd that he'd, you know, make the effort to actually call and ask me about it. 
about a month later, I resigned myself to the fact that I would try one more time and then leave it alone if there was no progress. Simply just give it one more shot and see if there's anything I could do to help clarify or whatever might be needed to make this happen. So I called a final time and spoke with a completely different and much more abrupt member of the committee. And I was asked to refrain from asking about this project any further as it had been jettisoned. And I had asked if there had been any other solutions employed for the issue and I was hung up on. So that really did it for me. I was like, all right, this is ridiculous. The amount of effort we put into this and all that, and we're trying to solve their problem. doesn't make any sense to me. Several hours later, Joshua called and in a much more assertive tone than I'd ever heard from him before, asked if I had time to meet at the embassy that evening. And when I asked the reason, he indicated he would share details when we were in person. So that evening in the courtyard of the embassy, Joshua shared that the very same people that had hired the team to find the solution to the oil piracy were the very beneficiaries of that very same crime. They had specifically hired a young, inexperienced group so that they could actually show that they were doing something without ever intending to put it into action. Now, the fact that our solution actually was viable meant it had to be buried. And my incessant probing had now prompted actions to facilitate, quote unquote, my removal. And when I asked him to clarify removal, he clarified I had been marked and was slated to be the target of a hit squad due to my continued queries. Needless to say, I stopped calling. Um, and clearly Joshua was not working for just the state department. In fact, I've stayed friends with him for the last 25 years or so. So he's become a really good friend. But six months later, I moved back to the U S and I set up my, the Atlanta branch of my consultancy, thankfully very much alive. And to my knowledge, the oil piracy is still very actively happening and being facilitated by those in power. This was a, certainly a very harrowing experience, but it pales in comparison to a conversation in a cafe on Sloan street in the middle of London about a natural resource mining operation in the African Congo. But that my friends is for another episode. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.